Good morning. Good morning. Happy Earth Day Sunday. <laughs> Is that a thing? I don't know. We'll make it a thing. So I went to Earth Day yesterday, but I went to Earth Day early, like Thursday. <laughs> it wasn't that early. I went, I went early because I brought my dog Sophie with me, and I thought if we went before a lot of people showed up, we could navigate the smaller crowd. But this crowd was way smaller than I expected. In fact, the only people who were there at the time we showed up were the Jehovah's Witness. So I don't know who was at Earth Day, and I don't know if you noticed the Jehovah's Witness, but I always noticed Jehovah's Witness, whether it's the, uh, you know, the, the, what do you call it, the, the food fair, what do we call it? The, no, the regular thing we have every week when the weather turns nice. Farmer's Market, thank you very much. Whether it's the Farmer's Market or Earth Day, whatever event, there's usually Jehovah's Witness. Sometime at, sometimes they're at every corner, you know, around the square. But I love Jehovah's Witness. They're usually very nice. And so I always talk to them. And they like dogs, by and large. So I went over to the, but this time they only had one group of, of there's only one set up. So I went over and we were just chatting and I said, so what's your hook for Earth Day? <laughs> right? Everyone else has got an Earth Day shtick going on. What's, what's, you know, what's your hook? How are you going to get people to um, you know, be attracted to Jehovah's Witness, specifically the Earth Connection? So you know, they, they didn't have one. And I said, look, I'm not Jehovah's Witness, but let me help you out. <laughs> Because the other Christian groups that may or may not come, and I don't know if there were any other Christian groups that had, that had booths, uh, but the other Christian groups, they're about getting off planet, right? So if some, some of them want to get off planet this week. You know, there's going to be a rapture, and I'm all about the rapture. I'm Jewish. I'm not going to be raptured. I'm all about the fact that people who are raptured get lifted to heaven naked, so I always have my iPhone camera with me because, you know, <laughs> check this out, you know. So I just want to get photos of my neighbors naked going to heaven. So <laughs> Frank goes too much. <laughs> you could, that's right. So, <clears throat> so they, but they just want to get off planet. Or if not, you know, the rapture, then somewhere else they'll end up in heaven. But the idea is you don't want to end up on earth. But Jehovah's Witness they imagine that the earth will be remade. It's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be, a, it's going to be heaven on earth. They don't tell you that only Jehovah's Witness will be here then and that not even all of them will be here, but it's still a hook. So I explained Jehovah's Witness to the Jehovah's Witness, and they said, well, yeah, that's pretty good. We don't have to say only a few of us are going to be around, but we can say that our belief is that God is going to remake the earth and make it beautiful and whole and, and holy again. So ours is a religion of, I don't know, earth optimism. So, you know, I didn't ask him for any money for that advice, <laughs> and, I, and I went on, but before I was out of earshot, Another group, there were like six more Jehovah's Witnesses showed up, and they were just saying hello and getting ready to move around the square. And they said, come over here, come over here. We have this great idea. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone else, you know, talked to Jehovah's Witness, and you heard my little rant there about that. But, you know, maybe I helped them get a couple of converts, which is, is my, my goal in life. 
So I did that for them. I want to do something similar for you, but not Jehovah's Witness style and not even UU style. I want to take a look at the first verse of Genesis and see what it has to tell us about the nature of earth and life on earth from a philosophical perspective. Because usually when I read Genesis, I read it as myth, folktale. And I compare it to other creation stories and, and things like that. But I want to look at it from the perspective of philosophy. And I'm taking as my source uh, a guy named Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who wrote in the 19th century. This is his commentary just on Genesis. Um, I know. <laughs> it's like I was going to bring the whole volume thing, but I need a U-Haul. So I only brought the Genesis volume. And I'm just going to reference him, but not go into the details. I mean, it's, it's pages and pages on each word. So we're not going to go into the, in the detail. But he tries to lay out, using Hebrew analysis of the Hebrew language, to show us that this is a philosophical text. The people who wrote Genesis chapter 1 were the priests. If you, if you take a Bible course, standard Bible course in a university, they'll tell you there are four different groups of authors of the Bible. There's, they call them J-E-P-N-D. So the J writers are the oldest ones. They're the ones who refer to God as the unpronounceable name Y-H-V-H, but because these were German scholars, they, didn't, they, they used the word J, so J-H-V-H. And from J-H-V-H, you get the word Jehovah, and that's where you get Jehovah's Witness. So they called the earliest writers the J writers. In, if we were being more accurate, we say they were the Y writers, or the Yud in Hebrew, the Yud writers. But they're the oldest ones. Their God is the most, most anthropomorphic. Their God has a body in the, in the, in, in, and seems to act more like a person. Uh, the E writer lives around the same time as the J writer. They refer to God more generically as Elohim, which is just the Hebrew word for God or gods. Then you get the P writer, and that P stands for the priestly writer, and they're the more philosophical. And then you get the D writer, and that stands for the Deuteronomist, and they're the more historically oriented. They try to tell the story of the Jewish people. But the P writer is the philosophical writer. They're the priests. These are not stupid individuals, though I tend to portray them that way when I talk about them. Not today. All right? I'm going to give them their due as philosophers. I'm going to suggest that they were smarter than my snarky you know, Bible commentaries tend to, tend to do. And that's what Hirsch does in his commentary. He really says, let's assume, which is a good assumption, that these people were well-educated, and when they wrote what they wrote, they were influenced by all kinds of outside forces, um, Greek influence, diff different, different cultures, and they were trying to create uh, a, a vision of, of, of God and the origins of creation and the nature of life that really spoke to them as thoughtful people. Does that, does that make sense? So I'm going to lay it out leave an open-ended question at the end and that we can pick up in the talkback section. So everybody knows, how does the Bible open? In the right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we all think it says. So it doesn't. 
<laughs> right? It doesn't, but that's what we say in English. Go to Barnes & Noble, pick up almost any English translation of the Bible, and it always says, in the beginning. The Hebrew does not say in the beginning. The Hebrew says, and you try to hear the difference, the Hebrew says, b reshit. In the beginning would be ba reshit. That's in the beginning. But the Hebrew Bible doesn't say that. It says b reshit. Bereshit means with a beginning. And it could be many beginnings. There could have been many beginnings before the one that's, that the Bible talks about. And there can be many beginnings afterwards. Or there could be many beginnings simultaneously. This, though, Hirsch lives way before multi-universe theory. He lives, leaves room open for multiple creations. So in his philosophical read, he says it could be that, that whatever the creative force was could have created a world and it didn't work, right? Gravity was too strong, gravity was too weak, and so poof, it, just, it just went off into, you know, into, it didn't congeal or everything just collapsed. So he tries again or, you know, God tries again over and over again until finally gets one that works. But it's not, there's not just one beginning. There could be multiple beginnings. So, Let's put aside the idea that there's a beginning. There's just many possible beginnings. And then it says, but again in our English, in the beginning God created. So this word created is also problematic. According to Hirsch, if you take a deep dive into the Hebrew, the word is bara, it really means to actualize that there's God is somehow actualizing the potential of something that was already there. So it's not creation ex nihilo, like out of nothing. There was something, and we'll talk about that in a second, that had potential, and God actualized its potential. What was that something? And, and that potential becomes, when it says heavens and earth, it doesn't mean heavens um, like, um, you know, like you go to heaven when you die. It's really earth and sky, or cosmos and the planet, or something like that. But it doesn't mean a spiritual heaven. That's not what they were thinking of. That comes much later. So when, when it says heavens and earth, it really means the sky and the earth, or the, the, the cosmos and the earth. So... <clears throat> So just to, I'll just read you a bit of this. Um, he says, the word bara denotes the emergence from potentiality into actuality, the release of what was held in bondage as a potential into its own fulfilling of its own actuality. Um, so it's somehow the realization of its, its potential is this word bara. That's what God did. Didn't create anything, just freed what was already there. So what is the nature of what was already there? So it says, in, in most translations, the earth was, and the Hebrew is, tohu vavohu, which is hard to translate, but it means wild, unformed, chaotic. It, it's just a mess. It's sort of like, if you saw like a sea of lava or something, you know, everything is boiling and bubbling, and there, it, nothing, nothing maintains form. It takes a shape, and then the shape dissipates. Nothing can hold form for long. 
it's just in, it's, right, it's sort of like bubbles up and then goes away. If we were comparing sacred text, you could compare Genesis, this is the second verse, ver, second verse of chapter one, you could pick, compare chapter one, verse two, with um, a book in the Buddhist tradition called the Heart Sutra. I don't know if anyone's ever read the Heart Sutra, but the Heart Sutra is this wonderfully obtuse, short encapsulation, because it means heart, it doesn't mean your heart, it means the, the heart of the teaching, the heart of the Buddha's teaching. Uh, uh, Prajnaparamitra something sutra, <laughs> I'm missing a word there, but it's the, it's the heart of the Buddha's teaching. And it says, um, depends on the translation, but form is emptying, empty, emptying is forming, nothing stays the same, that every, everything, there's nothing and then there's something and the something becomes nothing and then nothing becomes something and there's, you can't grasp hold of anything, even nothing, right? So there's no permanence, in, there's no, nothing is permanent, not even impermanence. Because impermanence leads to permanence, and then permanence becomes impermanence, and it just, there's nothing to hold on to. The same thing is said in, in verse 2 here, that, that whatever this original uh, reality is before its potential is released, it's just wild and uh, chaotic, tohu vavohu, unformed madness. And it's darkness is over the whole mess. Now, mostly the Bibles that you pick up in Barnes and Noble will say, uh, and darkness was on the, over the deep, like the ocean or something. But that's not what the Hebrew says. It, the Hebrew says, uh, is talking about this tohu vavohu, and then it talks about, it calls it just raging. And it's darkness engulfs the raging. So you can't even see the raging. It's just raging. Stop me if this doesn't make sense, because it's a lot, of, a lot of imagery. So there's just this wildness, this wild raging. You can't see it. It's all dark. Um, and over that whole mess, there's the breath of God. And the breath of God is vibrating. So... In most English Bibles, it'll say, the Spirit of God hovered over it. But the Hebrew is, is not that you need to know this, but it's, mira, it's the word is mirakefet. It means to vibrate. So the breath of God, you got this raging mad wildness, and then all of a sudden the breath of God is vibrating over this whole thing. And the breath of God, this, or the vibrating breath of God, speaks. We're going to get to that in a second. So the earth is like this. And then over the this is this. Right? It's, it's a wild, uncontrolled vibration. And then there's a more oscillating vibration that becomes audible sound. But the whole thing is vibration. The universe itself before creation is vibration. And then God speaks. 
But God's speaking is simply the audible form of God's breath vibrating. What does that suggest to you? Sound. And what, what kind of sound? Because it's going to be audible. What? Yeah, who said Om? Yeah, so it's like Om. It, it, I mean, the Hindus have the same, I was going to say myth, that's not the word I'm looking for in this context, but the same idea that there's this primal sound, they call it Om. Here, the sound is going to be or, oh, in English, O-R. Um, in, in, in Sanskrit, they would say it's A-U-M. What other tradition posits the same idea? Hinduism does it. The Hebrew Bible does it. If you grew up in a Christian environment, Christian church, think back, John 1-1. One, one. Yeah. Right. In the beginning was the word. Right. So John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then Christianity says, and the word became flesh, and they imagined the flesh was Jesus. But in the Hindu version, or the biblical version, or the Genesis version, the word in the, in the Genesis version, the word becomes light. In the Hindu version, the word becomes life, ultimately. But not a specific person. I would argue that what the priests are saying, though they have no connection to the Hindus that we know of, I would argue that what the priests are saying in the Bible and what the Hindus are saying in uh, their, their texts is the same thing, because neither one of them are limiting the sound to a person. They're taking the sound and saying the sound is the act, is the creative, I don't know how you'd put it, the sound is the creating of the universe. Or the universe is the, the wild vibration becoming, I don't know if you want to say reduced or ordered. You know, we need some scientists to help with this. Harmonized, maybe? Becoming structured in such a way that you and I can experience it. So we can experience it audibly, but ultimately we can experience it through our entire five senses and the machines that we invent to extend those five senses. Because not only is it, uh, do I hear the, the ohm sound, but I can also see the vibration manifest as human beings and trees and animals and dogs and cats and elephants, etc. Everything is ultimately the vibration of the divine breath or an expression of the divine sound, which is the same thing. So that's according to, to the philosophical reading of, of Genesis, chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 and 2, that's the philosophical reading, that the universe that you and I experience is vibration. So then he goes on, and it says, it's got 
pages of commentary here. Uh, so then we hear, or you know, the priests who are writing this say, and then it says, and God said. But what, what it is, is so God's vibration becomes this audible uh, dimension. And what they hear, what God says, is let there be light. Now, it doesn't actually say let there be. It, just, it basically just says light. But it can't be light like light or, or sunlight because there's no sun until day four and this is day one. So the open question, which we won't answer, I'm just going to drop it, leave it, and we'll come back to it later on. The open question is, what is he talking about? What is the or? Because it isn't light like sunlight or, or electric light. The first thing that the vibration says is light. Now, I'll tell you later what he says, because he has a whole long thing about what the word light means. But I think we can come to it without going into his Hebrew commentary. So let me, so let me just step back and talk about another, other aspects of, this, of the text. So you get this wild, raging madness. That's the fundamental nature of nature. And then God just lays this uh, more modulated sound over it that reveals or allows for the manifestation or the, the actualization of form to hold for a little while, because ultimately every form dies, right? But it allows for form to manifest for a longer period of time to create life. What doesn't happen is the rage, the tohu vavohu, the madness, the, the emptiness forming and the forming emptiness emptying. That never stops. There's no point in the original two verses of creation here. There's no point where order takes over. There's just a point where, and, and there's, I don't know the English, if, if, unless we can come up with words, I don't have any. There's just a point where there's enough structure that we can experience the madness in a less mad way. We can experience the chaos in a way that allows us to perceive a level of order that isn't absolute but which we then pretend is absolute, and then we're always surprised when things fall apart. Yeah. Basically, the creation story is not violating the laws of thermodynamics. It's not violating the laws of thermodynamics, right. Every, it's entropy, fundamentally. I get, but maybe not entropy absolutely, because then maybe it then there's more creation, because it, it um, tohu vavohu is everything breaks down and then pops up again. Yeah, right. It wouldn't, but it, it, but, but also, but not. Did you ever hear what he said? I mean, we sort of in talk back already. But it doesn't violate the laws, of the the theory of evolution. But it also supports the theory of evolution. I forget whose approach this is, with the big jumps. Jay Gould. Jay Gould. Yeah. Where you get. Yeah. What is it? Punctuated equilibrium. So you can get these big jumps, um, that you can't anticipate because the thing is fundamentally wild. 
we want, most of us, we, we don't want wild. We want steady state. We want things to be, we want to count on things being the way they are. But they're never the way, well, they always are the way they are, but the way they are is this tohu vavohu. We don't want that. We want everything to be, no, no, this is good. My, my friendship should always stay. My marriage should always stay. My health should always stay. Everything should always be okay. And yeah, I will die eventually. But according to a recent article I read based on Ray Kurzweil's synchronicity, if I can just hold on for another eight years, I may be, be able to hold on indefinitely because the singularity is coming sooner than we thought. And either that's going to come because I'm going to get nanobots in my body that will fix everything that's wrong with me, or as Frank Allison and I were talking earlier, there'll be so much plastic in my body that I can't break down anymore <laughs> at all. So whichever way it goes, I will achieve immortality, not the way the Jehovah's Witness people imagined it, but by being permanently you know, plastic. Um, but we want that steady state. But the Bible is saying there's no such thing. It's just tohu vavohu. It's just wild and chaotic. And there's no way around that. In other creation, now take it out of philosophy into mythology. In other creation myths, you get the symbol of the dragon, which is often the symbol of chaos. But the hero comes and kills the dragon. And then out of the corpse of the dragon, comes the universe. In this one, God never kills the chaos. God just sort of like sings a lullaby <laughs> over the chaos. Just here's a here's like wild sound and then goes mm, let's just make another sound that modulates it enough so that you and I can have a life and and and, and there's a there's a, a, a creation that we can appreciate that lasts longer than the raging chaos that, that Genesis uh, verse 1 verse 1 talks about. But then we fall into the delusion that this is, this is permanent and there is no such thing. And then our religions come to take the only bit of impermanence that we can, that, that, that we, I guess you say, psychologically allow ourselves, meaning death, right? So I can, I can pretend that it's permanent, but I can't pretend I don't die until I can invent a religion that invents the idea of immortality or reincarnation, right? And even when you get to Buddhism, where there's no soul to reincarnate, they still have reincarnation because they gotta have something. I mean, you, got, you have the 14th Dalai Lama. There has to be 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, right down to the first Dalai Lama, somebody, you know, so, so there's, even there, there's some sense of, of everlastingness. But in, in Judaism, though it's less of an issue in Judaism, in Judaism, the prime, the, the central belief, and most Jews don't believe any of this, but still, in, in the tradition, the central belief is, no, everybody dies, but in the end, everyone's resurrected. But the end is far off, but still, it doesn't matter. The point is, you are coming back. Um, that's closer to... Um, when they cryogenics, right? When they freeze you and they'll bring you back when you can be healthy again. In, in the Jewish one, <clears throat> you'll be brought back and, and you'll be brought back in a healthy body. And then the rabbis debate 
what your age will be. And, you know, I mean, if you look at resurrection debates, Jewish and Christian, they're really funny because they have these debates. What happens to all your, they, they talk about the hair that you've lost. Will you be resurrected with all of that hair? Have you ever had a haircut? What happens to the hair? So all that hair comes back. So in, in Judaism, uh, if, you had, if you lost a limb or something, you have to save that limb and be buried with it so that when God miraculously reanimates your body, all the parts will be there. Because as powerful as God is, I guess, God can't actually make a missing limb. It's got, it's got, God's got, where'd that arm go? What am I going to do now? You know? So you have to save all these, all these parts. Or if you die as a baby, do you get re, you know, resurrected as a baby? I mean, how annoying is that? So... They have all these debates about this stuff, and it's, which just to me makes it ludicrous. But to me, it's, it's a psychological debate, not a, a philosophical debate, in that it's just that we don't want to admit that we die. In the original, I think, Genesis 1 and 2 here, uh, verses 1 and 2, the idea is that no form is permanent. Everything just gets um, the, the second law of, of thermal, thermal dynamics, everything the first law. First law or which law? Entropy. Second. second law. So the second law is, you know, everything is going gonna, is gonna to break down. And that's just the way it goes. But the universe itself will just keep regenerating. But not you, right? I mean, it's like the Hindu analogy of the ocean and the wave. No wave lasts forever, but the ocean keeps waving. So it's just that you don't come back. The ocean just keeps coming back in different form. So... The philosophical worldview that the priests give you is one that is fundamentally insecure and without certainty. And the only other book in the Bible, well, I would say there's two, but one more explicit than the other. The only two books in the Bible that take Genesis 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 seriously are Job and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, most of all, because Ecclesiastes is the more philosophical, I think. Ecclesiastes starts out by reiterating, in a way, this whole notion of Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, where Ecclesiastes says that life is essentially, the word in Hebrew is hevel uh, havalim. And um, if you pick up a English translation in, in Barnes and Noble, it'll say vanity upon vanity or meaninglessness upon meaninglessness. I don't know where they get those translations. It's not from the Hebrew. The Hebrew literally means impermanent. The word havel means, it comes from the word for morning dew, that things arise in the morning, but by 10 o'clock, they're gone. So he's saying, Ecclesiastes is saying that everything comes and everything goes, and it's pretty quick. You can't hold on to anything. And then the rest of the book, when read from that perspective, is all about how do you live a decent life when you know everything is fleeting and there is no permanence. And, and you can read the genius of that book by reading either of my translations of Ecclesiastes with commentary 
available, sadly, no longer at your local bookstore, but certainly on Amazon. Uh, so, so Ecclesiastes deals with that directly, and then the book of Job deals with it a little less directly, in that horrible things happen to Job, and then when Job says to God, what are you doing? God basically says, you can't understand this. And Job says, well, show me what, what the reality is. And then God says, okay, and just shows Job the wildness of creation. The same thing happens in the Bhagavad Gita. I think it's chapter 13 or maybe chapter 11. Don't hold me to that. But in the Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna, the hero, says to Krishna, show me the true nature of reality, which is Krishna it's, uh, himself. Show me your true nature. And he shows him the universe. And uh, it's just this wild, chaotic world of exploding suns and, and all this stuff. That's what the universe is like. The Hindus and, the, and the, the, this aspect of Judaism gives you the same worldview. It's just wild, creative, gorgeous, harrowing, brilliant, but not permanent and not safe. And there is no certainty or surety. And the question is, can you live well without that? And that's according to the priests, and we'll get to that in talk back. And that's why the first thing God says is light, which, according to um, Hirsch, really means something like awareness. That's what God is, is the first thing that God creates, you might say, is, is awareness. So we're going to explore what that might mean in a minute. But that's, I'm leaving you with that, and we'll see where this goes when we come back from the break. Okay, hopefully some of that stuck, and, and we'll see what happens. Thank you. Thank you.